I'm John LaBelle, your host. Wow. So we just, I, did you listen to Mike Fader uh, just before, just the show just ended? Been a, I've been a big fan of his for decades and uh, so flattering to be on, on the radio following Mike Fader. Anyway, great storytelling. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm, Mondays at 10 a.m. If you're in the East Coast of the United States, but we're global, so it could be any time. And you can catch our back shows online at visionaries.podbean.com. And on Visionaries, we talk about creativity in the arts, sciences, technology, culture, spirituality, and whatever's on my mind. <laughs> which today is evolution. So I'm, you know, my, my favorite science magazine these days, everybody's favorite science magazine, is New Scientist. And um, I also get it on Twitter. So, you know, so I get these stories on Twitter, and I say, gee, is that going to be in my next paper issue? So we're in this kind of schizophrenic world. You know, are we on paper or are we online? But anyway, um, actually, a couple months ago, New Scientist did a cover story on Timeship, which is a project I'm involved with. You'll find us at timeship.org. I'll have the director of the project on shortly, but it's a um, next-generation cryonics facility our clients are, uh, <laughs> they're against death. <laughs> so they think it's a bad idea. And so they're working to turn it off. You know, after all, uh, aging is just, uh, you know, we have a few genes that make us age. Some creatures don't age. I mean, you know, there are trees that live to be thousand years old. Uh, sharks are you see a big shark, you know, it might be 30 years old. It might be 300 years old. They don't, uh, they don't particularly age. And so if they can identify what those genes are that are making us age and then uh, turn them off, you know, with CRISPR, which is really frightening stuff. So we've had recumbent DNA for decades now. Uh, the biggie back in the uh, about 30 years ago, scientists uh, first at City of Hope, where my brother-in-law was director of medical genetics. It wasn't his lab, but someone at City of Hope was able to clip the genes in. Well, let's back up. If you have a, a childhood type, childhood or type one diabetes, you're in trouble. And before, oh, I don't know, maybe about uh, 40, 50 years ago. You, you you would die because you couldn't metabolize sugar, and it would just keep accumulating in your blood. And eventually they were able to figure out what the problem was. And they think now that um, you get some type of virus as a child, 
and your immune system goes after the virus. <coughs> and uh, so type 1 diabetes is one of those autoimmune diseases where you're going after some infection, your immune system is, and it overdoes it and it uh, attacks you. And so lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and uh, type 1 diabetes are among these autoimmune diseases where your immune system is attacking you. And it destroys the Isles of Langerham in your pancreas, and they're, they're the cells that make, uh, make human insulin. And so they were able to isolate insulin from cows and, uh, or pigs, and diabetics would inject that several times a day. And it would, uh, it would be pretty good, but they'd still, you know, they'd have a deteriorating health condition, but they could live for years or decades, unlike uh, before they had that technology. But it wasn't perfect because this was not human uh, insulin. It was, um, you know, animal insulin. So what City of Hope was able to do was, with recumbent DNA, they'd clip out the, D the genes in... Uh, human beings that made this human insulin and paste it into the DNA of E. coli bacteria, breed up a bathtub full of this E. coli bacteria, feed it the nutrients that it needed, and it'd be churning out human insulin. And they'd isolate that, and that became what di type 1 diabetics would inject. And then, excuse me, <coughs> They keep working, you know, like um, to inject it exactly the right time, and you could have an insulin infusion pump that would uh, automatically detect blood sugar levels in your blood. Excuse me, I'm going to cough again. <coughs> there we go. And um, so, okay, so that's recombinant DNA. That's cool. And... Uh, can we do that for other things? And and we get genetically modified crops, you know, like uh, um, or animals, you know, like we take these uh, these uh, the DNA <coughs> that produces glowing in fireflies or something. And uh, there's an episode in Big Bang Theory where. Raj says, let's go over, excuse me, <coughs> let's go over to the genetics lab and watch the glow-in-the-dark bunny. Or Sheldon makes it glow-in-the-dark goldfish. So, okay, so we can do that, and then we have a genetic, genetically modified food. And on um, Progressive Radio Network, we're mostly against that. But anyway... Uh, with CRISPR, it's this technology where it's a lot easier to do this. Like any high school student with a, you know, with a together biology lab can start maybe doing dangerous stuff. So anyway, long story. Um, um, where was I? Oh, yeah. Time check. So. You know, maybe they can uh, fix the DNA in human beings so we don't age. In the meantime, if they don't make it, uh, you know, people uh, want to be frozen. 
cryonics. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm director of research for a, a next-generation cryonics facility, and they did a cover story on us in New Scientist, so I think they're a cool magazine. So I'm looking uh, just yesterday, I'm flipping through my Twitters, and I, I'm linked to New Scientist, and I read, we may have the evolution of beauty completely wrong. Many male animals sport dazzling displays to attract a mate, but a new book says we may have misunderstood Darwin, and this is all about arbitrary aesthetics. So, you know, why why do peacocks have those ridiculous tails? I mean, <laughs> if there's a fox after a peacock, dragging around that tail isn't going to help uh, get away from the fox. So what's the advantage of that stupid tail? And... Uh, well, you know, it tracks a mate, it tracks a peahen. Uh, yeah, but uh, why does a peahen want a mate with a creature that's going to produce her offspring to have these ridiculous tails that are going to make them get caught by foxes? And, well, maybe the tail displays that this uh, male peacock is so healthy that it can afford the to waste all that energy to grow that stupid tail and um, uh, still survive getting away from foxes. So it must be so superior genetically that that's the one to mate with, as opposed to the uh, peacock with the crummy little tail, uh, who can get away from foxes really easily. But, you know, so... You know, they're, they're, you know, evolutionists went through this convolution to try to understand this phenomena. But this article suggests maybe it's aesthetic. Well, um, what I want to talk today uh, about was science. And, uh, you know, as in, what's up with science? And we have this... Um, uh, Recently had this March for Science that took place in Washington and all over the country. And, okay, so, you know, most of us are in favor of science. But it looked like uh, maybe the march was really to support political correctness and uh, big funding <laughs> for labs. You know, it's very important that our funding not get cut off because <laughs> that's how we finance our weekend house. <laughs> You know, there's, we have to, you know, make sure that we're critical of establishment science. So if you're a fan of Gary Null, you know, there's a lot going on in medical and nutritional science that we, how do they get away with that? Is to, I remember, you know, all the decades where the, the food pyramid, right, we're supposed to eat comp, complex carbohydrates. Well, you know, that led to the obesity epidemic and a, a diabetes epidemic. You know, the government just brought on the premature death of uh, tens of millions of people through science. So science has become uh, a buzzword for one's favorite politics. But, you know, maybe we should exercise our uh, critical judgment. I think a little bit about this. And... I think, you know, a little bit about evolution. So <clears throat> you can't question evolution. I mean, um, if you want to make a liberal go berserk, question evolution. 
I was uh, I was at a family gathering over the weekend, and um, I I uh, you know, I was making a point of avoiding politics, but something came up, and uh, you know everybody there is of course a liberal, and I questioned the Federal Reserve, and one of my cousins went berserk. I thought he was going to bust the blood vessel or something. And I realized that's, that's a, you know, conservatives question the Federal Reserve. So if you question the Federal Reserve, uh, some people will hear a whole litany of things you didn't say and probably don't mean, but uh, that's what they hear. So you always have to be careful between what you say and what people hear. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, there's an alternative to the Federal Reserve where suppose instead of uh, pumping out money for political reasons, you have measures of the GDP and the growth in the economy, and you create new money to equal the growth of the economy. You don't want to have too little money. That's what happened during the Great Depression. They cut back on the money supply just when they should be increasing it. But um, this idea of, oh, let's pump out more money and have stimulus. Well, if stimulus worked, why don't we do it all the time? You know, we've been having this, what is it, quantitative easing. We've been having this massive stimulus going 0% interest rates going on for, um, you know, for, what, eight years. And what's the result? You know, the most anemic economic growth in modern times. And that isn't right. That shouldn't be. That isn't what the model says. Model says we'd have better economic growth. Well, maybe, uh, you know, pumping uh, phony baloney money into the system doesn't produce growth. Maybe innovation and uh, new companies and new and better products and greater efficiencies produce economic growth. And but, oh, you know, that's difficult. It's easier just to print money. So anyway, my 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 I'm a, I, I favor the idea that <clears throat> the production of money supply should not be political, but should be automated and be exactly corresponded to the size of the economy. Economy grows. You need more money. Uh, doesn't grow. You don't need more money. End of story. And then you do other things to make the economy grow than print phony baloney money. Anyway, uh, that's, you know, <laughs> but uh, that isn't what my uh, my relative heard. He heard something else and went berserk and almost bust, burst a blood vessel. But anyway, uh, same thing with evolution. You know, uh, <clears throat> so evolution's a fact. There's, and there's no question. Uh, there are animals walking, including us, animals walking around today that are descended from animals in the past that were different. I mean, there's no, uh, if you're a reasonable person, there's no questioning that. Uh, there's no human fossils from uh, 100 million years ago, uh, but there are human beings around today. And uh, there are animals, you know, like dinosaurs that were around 100 million years ago that are not around today. 
Uh, end of story. It's that, that you know. Now, the other possibility uh, <clears throat> that the creationists propose, you know, I decided, um, what, 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 what's their argument? So I get this book on creationism, and I'm trying to read it. And you have to read between the lines because what they're proposing is so preposterous that they can't say it directly. <clears throat> but I'm reading this, and it says, well, um, let's go back uh, a few years when American cars were American cars. So if you have a ah, 1970 Chevy and you look at the engine and you got a, you know, you got the medium block. I had a 68 Chevy. I had the 305 engine. Uh, that's related to uh, a Chevy V8 from 1960 uh, or 1955. And um, the, um, you know, if you look at a, a 1970 Chevy and you look at a 1960 Chevy, and you look at the engines, that 1970 Chevy, in a way, you know, you'd say his descendant is related to. Obviously, it shares features with that uh, medium block engine from the from uh, ten years earlier, but it it's not descended from. It's not reproduced uh, by the engine. Doesn't mate and reproduce. So what it does is, it's made by the same engineers or by people who worked for the, you know, the engineers who did the earlier engine within a tradition. So there's a tradition of V8, of uh, the Ford, of the Chevy engines, which is different from the tradition of the Ford engines and the Plymouth engines uh, or Chrysler engines. And so uh, you can see this relatedness the way we do between uh, chimpanzees and human beings. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one is descendant from the other. Okay, that's a cool thing to say. I had a 68 Chevy Chevelle for 20 years. <laughs> 305 engine stick shift. So, you know, I'm, I was sort of a little bit into that culture. <laughs> so, you know, I'm looking at this argument. I'm saying, no, wait a minute. So what, you know, they didn't say it, but what I'm reading between the lines is, okay, the creator, who's the parallel to the... Um, to the um, uh, engineers who are designing the engines at Chevy, the creator is making new creatures. And, you know, borrowing from Aristotle, who noticed the similarities? Now, all the bones in our body correspond to the bones in a bird. The bones in our arm correspond to the bones in a bird's wing. Uh, and they also correspond to the bones in a horse's leg. Aristotle knew that. Uh, different proportions, a few atrophy, a few expand. But they're all um, related. Well, why is that? Well, Aristotle said because they were all made by the same creator. They reflect the pattern of the mind of the creator or designer. So, okay, <clears throat> interesting idea and actually one that I'm in some way sympathetic to. will get to that eventually here. But uh, so what are these creationists saying? That there's some spot, you know, in a jungle somewhere that has been, we haven't, uh, you know, that, that God keeps creating new species and dropping them down from the sky. And, you know, because God has a certain pattern of mind, these different species have uh, certain relationships, you know, like all mammal, all mammal, well, all vertebrates have hearts. 
and lungs. Um, no, I guess they know, all land vertebrates. <laughs> I guess fish are also vertebrates. All land vertebrates have hearts and lungs and and, ver- and bones and vertebrates and ribs. Uh, and if <clears throat> uh, the evolutionists say, well, that's because they all share common ancestors. You know, we're we're descendant from uh, uh, fish that crawled out of the ocean and became uh, <clears throat> became. Uh, reptiles, and, and then there are mammals, and then there's, uh, you know, primates, and then there's us. So, you know, that makes sense. And uh, you go to the look at the creation and say, well, what's your explanation for, you know, we've all got these finger bones, whether they're in the wings of a bird or the hoof of a, of a horse, or all the land vertebrates have lungs and hearts and ribs. And well, you know, they're all created by the creator who has a certain pattern of uh, mind, and so they all share these patterns. Okay, but how do they get here? I mean, the creator creates, you know, <laughs> two of them and drops them from the sky. To How does a new species come about? Uh, um, you drop two of them down into this jungle somewhere that we haven't discovered. So there's some place where, you know, some mysterious island. You know, I just saw the new Kong movie, right? <laughs> this is material to this in the '60s during the Vietnam War. There's this unexplored island because there's a permanent storm around it. <clears throat> you know, in the 1890s, you could say because no one's been there yet. But, you know, with satellite pictures, if we haven't been there, we've seen everything. But anyway, um, okay. So what, 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 what is this explanation of this creationist that, 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 that God creates new species and drops, hopefully with parachutes, <laughs> you know, drops them into this mysterious island, and somehow they swim around, you know, to, re, to bring this new species to, around the planet, whatever. So obviously, um, don't want to insult anybody, but this is hooey. Uh, so what do the Darwinians say? What do the evolutionists say? Well, um, <clears throat> the, uh, every, you know, Darwin observes that every animal has more offspring. You know, that if there are two animals, uh, their ultimate offsprings has to be two. Otherwise... They'll increase in population if you know they're there. If every you know a bird, you know the robins in the spring lay their eggs, and there's five eggs in the nest, and maybe a robin lives six years. They do this five times, and it's twenty-five offspring for two robins. Uh, this eventually the world's going to be overrun in robins. That doesn't happen. They stay roughly the same unless we mess with them they start to disappear but so ultimately of all the offspring that robin has you know a frog lays what a million eggs uh every year uh and so you know 999,999 those can't survive and uh, they don't you know all these other kids oh all these uh, frog eggs let's go eat those uh, so um, Darwin observes this, and he says, so there's natural variations among these offspring. Only two survive, or you know, some such number, um, and the rest don't survive. 
Well, <clears throat> let's say that there's some minor variation in the environment. <clears throat> it gets colder. Uh, the, uh, there's a minor variation in the offspring. A couple have thicker fur. So over time, the ones with the thicker fur will survive. And the ones with the thinner fur won't. You know, statistically, in some cases, the thinner fur ones, you know, but over millions of years and millions of offspring, there's going to be this minor variation. So start to take hold and they're all going to have thicker fur. And Darwin says, you add up those minor variations over a long period of time and you get all of the creatures of the earth from, let's just say animals, uh, from an initial ancestor uh, um, leads to all the variation we see. All these species have common common ancestor. And we can certainly see that, you know, that uh, uh, we have the advantage today now of DNA. Uh, 99% of our DNA is identical to that of chimpanzees, you know. And we look at the at the at the apes, and we say they're pretty similar to us. And then we look at, you know, uh, horses, and say, well, you know, they're mammals; they're warm-blooded. Uh, they have hearts and lungs. Uh, they have red blood. Um, and you look again, you know, at the horse's leg, and every bone in that horse's leg corresponds to a bone in our leg or our hand, our arm. And, you know, so one of the fingers grows much bigger and the fingernail becomes the hoof. But, you know, it, why is that? Well, at some point, way back, we had a common ancestor with that horse. Um, you know, way, way back, and there are lots of in-between steps. But that's Darwinian evolution. Um, you know, it was convincing, but if you really looked at it, there was problems with it. But then... And, you know, Darwinian, um, Darwinism had kind of faded by the 1940s. There wasn't a lot of advocacy for it. Um, that No one was, you know, it wasn't that scientists had become creationists. It's just that one, you know, you have to understand how cultural science is. And, um, you know, between, you know, like, for example, string theory and quantum loop gravity. Uh, <laughs> Between Sheldon and what's that female physicist's name uh, in Big Bang Theory? She's a quantum loop gravity type. Sheldon's a string theorist. And they just, you know, spit fire at each other. They disagreed. You can't demonstrate one of them. They just culturally, at the moment, string theories won't one out, although it's now fading. And um, so culturally... You know, there just weren't a lot of people going into Darwinian evolution. Then in the 1940s, something happened. We started to start to fully understand uh, mutations. We started to understand chromosomes and genes. And then 1953, we understood what a gene was. You know, we with the Watson and Crick decoding the structure of DNA. And so now we really had an understanding of this mechanism. There's this DNA. Here's how it works. Um, how the 
the DNA actually codes for RNA, which codes for proteins, and you get a minor mutation in the DNA, and you get a different protein, and you all of a sudden get, you know, a fruit fly with uh, white eyes instead of red eyes. And so we understood that. And then we have... You know, all these, you know, make these observations and people were fudging a bit a bit. But it was true that you had all these uh, white moths in England living on the white birch trees. And then the birch trees turned black during the Industrial Revolution due to all the soot from all the coal. And those white moths, you know, were easily spotted by birds that would pick them off and eat them. But then there were, you know, a few moths that were dark gray, and um, the birds couldn't see those. And so the white ones disappear, and the mutated gray ones, um, hmm, they survived because they were camouflaged against those dark gray, soot-covered birch trees. And... Then, you know, starting in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we started to clean up all that pollution. And the world still has pollution, but in big cities in Europe uh, and America, and, you know, America is doing much better than Europe. And, of course, China is a horror story. <laughs> you know, um, I actually have offers now to go to China and lecture, and I'm thinking— I don't. I, I don't know. If my lungs can handle that. <laughs> my colleagues who are regulars there come back in with hacking coughs. But anyway, um, so they clean up London, um, and next thing you know, um, the birch trees turn white again, and the birds are picking off all those gray moths because they stand out. And a few mutations of white moths show up, and then they take over, and all the moths are white again. So we know it works, Uh, and we can actually see it before our eyes. But is this this really adequate? If you take these minor variations, and yeah, you know, you can get more fur, less fur, thicker fur, gray moths. But that cannot actually turn a moth into a... You know, whatever. <clears throat> Can it turn a um, Eohippus into a modern horse? Can it turn a, a, a bacteria into a dinosaur? <laughs> you know, over over just it's time enough to make these changes. And then we had a big development about um, 45, 50 years ago. Uh, Niels Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould put forward the observation of punctuated equilibrium. And they said, you know what? Yes, there are examples of gradualism here and there. But the larger picture is there is not gradualism. That a new species emerges, bang, there it is. It remains unchanged for millions of years until it goes extinct. That's the rule. The, yeah, exceptions are you see some gradual changes. They're all over the books that we had as children, which show, you know, the 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 Eohippus up to the modern horse is this little primitive horse, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you get the modern horse, or there's this weird animal, and it becomes a giraffe, and they do have the the links in between, but 
Uh, those are exceptions. And even human evolution, you know, when we look at our, we're not descended from chimpanzees. We and chimpanzees have a common ancestor way back. But there's something in it that the leakies found in East Africa. It was churning out these hominid creatures, and they started leaving Africa. And uh, one after another, we find them all over the world. And then they they disappear, and then there'd be another one. So um, the the last one before us was Neanderthals, and they were you know very successful. They spread all over Europe. Um, they were there for tens of thousands of years, but we are not descendants from Neanderthals. We have a common ancestor, and these common ancestors was churning out these hominid creatures. Um, but uh, how did this actually work? Uh, so um, Gould and Eldridge named punctuated equilibrium that, you know, there's this all of a sudden, poof, a new species shows up. Um, doesn't change for its uh, the course of its life uh, time of the species, and then it goes extinct. And that's the rule as opposed to the exception. Uh, but what they, so everybody said, great, punctuated equilibrium, you know, and it was the buzzword if you were following science in the 60s. Um, but then... Um, <laughs> Neil Eldridge was really annoyed about it. You know, he, he'd be at a party, and this whole thing got associated with Stephen Jay Gould because Stephen Jay Gould was a popularizer. He wrote a wonderful column for um, uh, Science Magazine. Which one was it? The one, the one associate published by the Museum of Natural Science in Washington. So maybe it was Natural Science Magazine. He wrote a regular column. Uh, which would get collected in his books, his wonderful books that we all read. And so he wrote about this, and everybody associated this with Stephen Jay Gould. And Niels Eldridge would be at a party, and, and, and someone would say, well, what do you do? Um, he'd say, uh, you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist. Oh, have you heard about punctuated equilibrium? He says, yeah, I've, <laughs> I created the theory. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Um, so, but, so everybody thinks, oh, great, you know, you know, we have this new thing, but that's a word, you know, it's a word that describes an observation. It doesn't explain anything. And everybody was happy to, you know, run around, you know, we're, we're great, you know, we're making progress in Darwinian evolution and they've just totally undermined it. They eliminated this gradualism thing which was key to it, uh, and not noticing. Now, problem is that <clears throat> there's a political cultural problem here of evolution is continually under attack by creationists. And the creationists, you know, continually change their tactic. You know, they, they come along with, well, we're not going to get away with creationism because <clears throat> that means that God creates these new species and we got this little problem of, well, where did he drop them off? <laughs> you know, he's going to introduce a new species. Where, where does he put it? Uh, can, we, can we watch that happening? Uh, so then we have intelligent design. So, yes, evolution takes place. 
But what drives it is God's intervention, and uh, which is why uh, we've got, you know, we see the com- rich complexity of these creatures, and so they are obviously designed. Um, you look at the eye, and something as complicated as an eye couldn't come about by a series of random accidents. So it must have been designed. And if it's designed, there must be a designer. God. Well, we're not, we're not going to say God. We're just going to say there's got to be a designer. Once you admit there's got to be a designer, the, um, the creationist has one half of their half of their argument. And so... That's a running battle, you know, and they, they'll take over local school systems and introduce this, and then the, the uh, scientifically oriented will go to court, and they'll have a big battle. And typically, the judicial system fa- finds in favor of scientific evolution against uh, the creationists and the um, intelligent design people. But anyway, there's still a problem. The evolutionists have no explanation for how evolution works. Uh, And they lost their explanation, which was Darwinian gradualism, when they accepted punctuated equilibrium. Well, they won't admit this, because if they admit this, then, you know, God forbid, uh, they've opened the floodgates for these, um, excuse me, I don't like to be, these nut jobs, (laughs) the intelligent design people. So... You know, they they just put up this this wall of defense. No problem here. No problem here. So, <laughs> I was recently at a um, at a at a at a conference in New York held by uh, key figures in in uh, evolutionary biology, and they're you know making their arguments of um, of we are so obviously right. And how could anybody question evolution? And in, I don't remember the exact figures, but, you know, in Europe, 90% of the public accept Darwinian evolution. In the United States, only 40% of the public accept uh, Darwinian evolution. How could the public be so scientifically ignorant? And um, uh, which is interesting because... uh, Something happened. And if we go back to the 1950s, uh, we were in the midst of the growth of science, you know, and this growth of science was continuous and successful. And, you know, we weren't too happy about the atom bomb, but we had uh, demonstrated the, the power and success of science in World War II with radar, rockets atomic energy, and this was only continuing. Again, 1953, we have <clears throat> the decoding of the structure with DNA. They, they, knew what, they knew what DNA was, but they didn't know its structure. And the moment they found its structure, they found out how it worked, that this double helix, this spiral, uh, it suddenly explained two things. Number one, uh, how... DNA reproduced. The spiral came apart, and each half could reproduce itself, could attract to uh, itself pieces that would remake the half that had peeled off. So that's how um, a cell splits in mitosis. And the other thing was that there's this chain of um, of the nucleotides, the um, base pairs 
uh, guanine, uh, cytosine, etc., A-T-G-C, and are the initials. And if you take those as four letters of a word, uh, any a, a group of four would then be a gene, which would then code for a protein. And so you had you suddenly understood how life worked. Um, you know, it was really of major importance. In fact, um, Crick died some years ago, but Watson, the uh, Watson and Crick were the two who who produced the breakthrough. And if they hadn't, someone else would have. There were several groups hot on the trail, including Linus Pauling, who everybody thought was going to get it because um, he was the great uh, uh, scientific chemist of the age. But <clears throat> he tripped up, and in part because they pulled his passport um, because he was against atmospheric testing of atomic bombs. He was just producing all this strontium-90 in our milk. Um, <clears throat> he uh, uh, was considered a security threat. His passport was pulled and he wasn't allowed to travel, and he missed some conferences where he would have gotten the information he would have needed to win the race. But anyway, Watson and Crick did it. Watson's still alive <clears throat> and uh, very arrogant, interesting character. Uh, and if you want a background on this beautiful book called DNA by Watson, which is a, a must-read, <laughs> he uh, a recent one, of course, his famous book is The Double Helix, written in the 60s, describing the race. And it was controversial because it described the the inside dirty story of science, dirty in the sense that, you know, these people wanted to win. And they would do things, you know, like steal photographic plates from Franklin uh, from her desk uh, in order to win. But anyway, um, the... Uh, Watson was having an argument with one person, somebody at one point, and that person said, uh, excuse me, I have a Nobel Prize too. And uh, Watson responded, I don't have a Nobel, a Nobel Prize. I have the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and it, it does, you know, it was one of the great moments in science. It really does unlock a lot of things and really maybe suggests that our whole universe comes from coding uh, rather than from, uh, you know, under Newtonian physics, we sort of think of our universe coming from um, uh, these equations, Newton's e calculus equations that describe the orbits of planets and uh, you know, these differential equations seem to explain things. But it, we realize they only explain what it, they explain. They don't explain clouds, trees, mountains. Mountains are not, uh, you know, cones. Uh, trees are not cylinders. Clouds are not spheres, as Mandelbrot says. And instead, these simple, you know, like rule-based systems uh, that make the Mandelbrot set. Look that up if, you, <laughs> if it doesn't ring a bell. It's really cool. A rather, you know, it's a little bit complicated, but an understandable equation 
makes this incredibly complicated, uh, infinitely, you can zoom in on a Mandelbrot set, and you can zoom in infinitely, only limited by the power of your computer. So a simple equation creates something of infinite complexity. And uh, you might have heard me say before, uh, one of the people who thinks this way is Stephen Wolfram, and uh, his technology lies behind Siri on your iPhone. And Wolfram likes to say, I think when I find the code that generates our world, it'll be about six lines. So six lines of rule-type coding, you know, computer kind of code, makes our entire universe. So the idea that that, you know, he hasn't found it yet, but he's working on it. Uh, the, that kind of thinking comes from this realization that all of life, I mean, a human being is pretty complicated. Um, you know, people like to say the human brain is the most complicated thing in the universe. More, more circuitry in a human brain than there are particles in a galaxy or whatever. You know, uh, all of life in general is pretty complicated. Human beings are really complicated. The human brain is very complicated. Uh, well, it comes from a code that has four letters and two rules. <laughs> I mean, you know, so what does that mean? Anyway, uh, getting back to evolution. So um, they had this problem that, um, so I'm at this conference, and they're talking about how, you know, Americans don't uh, buy this. Well, what happened was by the 1960s, as a result of Sputnik, the federal government started to get involved in education and science education and started to provide funding for textbooks, ma uh, mandates for textbooks. You know, I, well, our kids got to be educated. And OK, you know, we need math. We need algebra. We need pre-calculus. We need calculus. We need chemistry, you need physics, and we need biology. And biology gets you into evolution. And the kids start being told by their biology teachers, well, human beings are just one more creature. You know, we, it's only recently that we have the figure, but, uh, you know, we're 99% the same as a chimpanzee. The 1% is probably has to do with a little part of the brain and a little part of, uh, of being able to speak. They, they, the vocal cords aren't there in the chimpanzee uh, the way they are here. They are for human beings. And the speech center in the brain and a little bit of cortex, and that's the difference. So, um, so human beings are just uh, one more animal that arrived here totally by accident that might just as well not have happened. So kids come home and tell their parents that. And, you know, if their parents happen to be uh, religiously inclined, they might not like that. <laughs> and, you know, we're still in the middle of this, uh, whatever, culture war, controversy, challenging evolution, and all this going on. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a real headache for science. And however, maybe in saying our humanness is a function of this evolution, not just our biology, but our humanness, is, I mean, have they demonstrated that? Uh, 
you know, if we look at philosophy, literature, art, um, human nature, is is all of this explainable by DNA? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm a creationist or a intelligent designist, but it does mean I, you know, maybe they went a little too far. Well, as a result, then there's this big explosion. And parents started to object and the whole thing that we're still in the midst of today, which was a big surprise for a lot of us because we thought, you know, the rise of science, the decline of religious dogmatism was continuous and ongoing. That ever since the Scopes trial, the monkey trial in the 20s, things are only going to get better. And, um, you know, more and more acceptance of science. And uh, maybe religion could deal with uh, human beings' eternal soul and not tell us about how uh, the solar system came about or that the sky is an up-down soup bowl with uh, holes punched in it uh, for the stars. So, but um, uh, turned out not to be the case. And religion made this roaring comeback. Well, um, maybe there are problems with uh, neo-Darwinianism. You know, they lost their gradualism and they didn't adjust. They didn't say, oh, we need another theory. Well, there are other possibilities. So I'm at this conference and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a question in. And I said, do you feel that... Uh, Contemporary evolutionary theory has adequately absorbed information theory. And you could see that they were, you know, they didn't like that question. I got shouted down. Um, and you've, if you're familiar with a book uh, called Chaos uh, by Gleck, and it's the book that introduced chaos theory to us, and then... Um, small part of that is, you know, information theory. How does information work? What is information? How is it transmitted? Which is exactly what DNA is. DNA is an embodiment uh, of information and a means of transmitting it. And um, we have a theory now for understanding that. It's called information theory. It's in its infancy, but um, it's being highly developed in, sci in uh, computer science and network theory, so Gleck wrote a more recent book about five years ago called The Information. Highly recommend it. You've got to read this book. Uh, it's, you know, this is the field that dominates our time. The other part of this uh, is, uh, you know, how would you explain these jumps and change, these radical jumps, these uh, punctuated equilibrium? In other words, equilibrium in that creatures don't change, and then punctuations and there's a big sudden change to a whole different species uh, in a short period of time. And then the, the figure Eldridge and uh, Gould gave us, you know, like say 100,000 years, which is a tiny bit of, I mean, human beings have been around for 100,000 years. Uh, that's a tiny amount of time in geological time. Maybe it's even quicker, you know, like one generation. How would that happen? Well, there's another theory out there called symbiogenesis. 
And it's proposed by Lynn Margulies. She just died recently, but, you know, a real hero figure for people who follow alternatives in science. So at one point she was married to Carl Sagan. And um, uh, I don't know what happened, but they're, they're, you know, they got divorced. And first landing on Mars, they were looking for life. And uh, uh, Carl Sagan was part of the team uh, working on this. And Lynn Margulis's response is, oh, yeah, the boys and their toys. <laughs> they need to land rockets on Mars. I can tell you whether or not there's life there just by looking at the, looking at the atmosphere, looking at the energy level, the gases in the atmosphere. You know, in those old 50s science fiction movies, they'd pull up to a planet and they'd say, oh, our probe says, you know, uh, 28% oxygen in the atmosphere, just like Earth. Uh, that means... It might be possible for life to survive there. No, if there's free oxygen in the air, there is life. Oxygen doesn't float around free in normal circumstances. It locks up. You know, it's called oxidation. Uh, leave food out, it rots. It's oxidizing. Leave steel out, it rusts. It's called oxidizing. St oxygen is so aggressive, it'll lock up with everything. And it'll disappear from the atmosphere unless you're churning out new oxygen all the time through life, like plants. So if there's oxygen in the atmosphere, you know there's life. So Lynn Margulies can tell you whether or not there's, uh, whether or not there's uh, life on a planet just by looking at the balance of uh, the chemistry of the atmosphere. But anyway, her theory of symbiogenesis begins with the observation that the um, uh, mitochondria in our cells have the, their own DNA, uh, totally separate from the main DNA in the nucleus. And so when the cell reproduces, the mitochondria, you know, you get, or when you reproduce, you get half your DNA from the male and half the DNA from the female, and it's randomly shuffled each time so, so that the, their children will be different. They'll share some DNA, but most of it will be different. But the mitochondria gets passed down unchanged from the mother. The only change is slow mutations over generations. Well, why is this? What is this mitochondria all about? And Lynn Margulies shows they are a form of bacteria that got absorbed into other cells billions of years ago and change life. They are the energy uh, centers for the cells. They're what allows the cells to process energy. Same thing for the chloroplasts and plant. They have their plants. They have their own DNA. And they got absorbed into plants. Well, how'd that happen? Well, she's into bacteria. And she can show how bacteria do things like move continental plates and uh, they create the gold mines and, you know, bacteria have huge roles. The bacteria in our bodies are uh, way about the same as our brains. 90% of the DNA in our bodies are in bacteria and they communicate with the rest of us. Whole other subject for, you know, like you have a craving, sugar craving. You say, oh, well, you know, you're addicted to sugar. Uh, your sugar level dropped. Your insulin is, you know, too much insulin, dropped your sugar level, you have a sugar craving. 
oh, maybe the bacteria in your gut wants the sugar, and it's sending signals to the brain uh, to uh, cause the craving so the bacteria can get its sugar. And uh, how, what's it doing to a whole new field, totally re, um, reimagining our understanding of health? Well, anyway, Lynn Margulies proposes the way evolution happens is whole genomes, whole chunks of DNA get moved around by this bacteria. So this bacteria in us is interacting with us, and then you sneeze. <laughs> you blow it out into the room. You know, someone else picks it up. You know, it's like we have a lot of cat DNA in us. How'd that happen? You know, viruses was moving the DNA back and forth between us and our pet cats. Um, you know, that the idea that we're these isolated with inside our skin uh, mechanisms that through this internal machine-like quality that uh, Darwin talked about is moving our DNA around, um, is, change, is running our evolution. Maybe it's all networked. So let's pick up on this uh, another time, and uh, let's wrap up. So this is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries every Monday, 10 a.m. New York time, but could be any time your time, on PRN, Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. And you can hear this show in uh, later in the day, and all of our back shows, a few dozen of them, are on visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And you can click on any of them, hear them. Great shows with some interesting figures. Uh, John David Ebert talking about culture. Um, uh, Natasha Vita Moore talking about transhumanism. Uh, we're talking about Joseph Campbell with the head of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. All kinds of cool past shows. And uh, this one coming up also. So if you want to uh, uh, argue with your friends about uh, evolution, <laughs> I'm not questioning evolution. It's a fact. No question. But is Darwin's explanation adequate? So let's uh, wrap up and uh, we'll see you again next Monday. Next Monday.